0: Good evening. I'm so glad that we can be together this evening. I appreciate, brother, for leading these songs of praise to God. It is encouraging and gets our blood pumping a little bit to sing praise to God. It's something that we need, I think, at the end of this day, this Monday. I know that you're busy people. You've got many things you could be doing tonight. You've taken time out of your schedule to give consideration to the Word of God, you've taken time out of your schedule to think critically. About some of the claims and some of the messages we have heard, media and other sources, about the religion Islam. And I appreciate it. As we have said uh, throughout the series, looking at these things, learning and gaining information about these things, will really change the way that you watch the 6 o'clock news. And I appreciate the eldership here in this local church, the good work that Edwin does, in making this study and this examination a priority. Do you recall in 2006 that riots broke out in Denmark and other portions of the world? And the reason for the riots was the publication of political cartoons that depicted Muhammad as a terrorist. And the terrible affront that the world learned was that pictures of Muhammad had been drawn at all. We learned that Muhammad should never be drawn. Why, even a respectful illustration is not allowed because he is too venerated. I up a book for you to see. It's entitled Mohammed by the artist and writer Denis, and if you can't quite see it, there's a picture of it up behind me. Uh, you might be interested to know that my wife purchased this book at the Scholastic Book Fair in Williamson County last year, and I've seen it on the shelf at a couple of uh, this is a book written for children, elementary age children, to teach them the story of Muhammad and, uh, and the, the lore and the tradition that goes along with that. Even in this book, which is very favorable to teach children about Muhammad, he's not drawn. And he's the center of the story. In fact, he appears on every page, but he's not drawn. What is produced is a silhouette of Muhammad stamped in gold. See, he is too great to be drawn, and so is silhouette is impressed upon a page. Not only is he not to be drawn, but Muslims cannot say or write his name without adding the phrase, peace be upon him. In Demi's book, the word Muhammad is also accompanied by this Arabic symbol. Maybe you notice it on the cover or in the picture uh, behind me. It's Arabic, which means peace be upon him. All right. Muhammad was the most influential Arab in all of history. Muhammad was the most influential Arab in the hall of history. And we dare not be ignorant of his accomplishments. The religion that he preached has conquered kingdoms. His life and his message still influence one out of six people on earth today. I say all of this to make a point. It's because we, we learn these things. He's not to be drawn. You can't say his name without adding a word of praise. Who is this man? Who is Muhammad? Who is Muhammad compared to Jesus? Tonight we examine Jesus and Muhammad, two leaders of the two most prominent religions in the world, Christianity and Islam. Who are these men? Examining Jesus and Muhammad. Number one, as you go to your notes, let's talk about Muhammad. Who was Muhammad? I want to share with you a little bit of uh, information, biographical information about him. I want to share with you his story. Muhammad was born in approximately the year 570 570 A.D. in the city of Mecca. I have it circled there on the map. He died in Medina in the year 632. He was around 63 years old. Well, Muhammad was born and shortly after he was born, his parents died. He was orphaned as a child and he was raised by his grandfather who then shortly died. And finally, he was reared by an uncle in Mecca. At the age of 12, Muhammad accompanied his uncle to Syria. This was on a caravan... An important voyage. In going to Syria, the two encountered a monk there who looked at Muhammad and as the story goes said, This boy is special. This boy bears the marks of a prophet between his shoulders. And the uncle must take very good care of him. Something great will become of him. His life is fairly fairly quiet and pedestrian from that point. As an orphan growing up in Mecca, he's very poor. And at age 25, he takes a job. He takes a job leading trade caravans. That's how Arabians made their money, made their livings, by taking trade caravans uh, throughout the desert into places where they might find other goods and valuables. He was doing this on behalf of a wealthy widow, Khadijah. It's very significant that he was leading these trade caravans because it allowed him to travel to see other parts of the region, other parts of the world. He met many different people and he was exposed to religions of the world. He was exposed to all of Arabian paganism and mysticism. He was exposed to Catholicism. He was exposed to Gnosticism and to Judaism. His acceptance of some of these ideas and his rejections of others is certainly seen in the Quran. Well, Muhammad is very good at his job. Khadijah, who's 40 years old when he's 25, is very pleased with his work and proposes marriage. She wants to get hitched up, and they do. So he makes his money the old-fashioned way. He, he married this wealthy widow, Khadijah. They're happily married. They have several children together. He takes no other wife as long as they are wed. But when he gets to be 40 years old, he is now quite sufficient financially, and so he takes a month every year and goes to the mountains outside of Mecca to pray and to fast and to meditate. Well, when he was 40 years old, it was one of these trips up into the mountains where he's all by himself having his prayer and having his meditation. When the angel Gabriel pierced him suddenly and begins to choke him, he grabs a hold of his throat and he shakes him and chokes him and he says, Speak! Speak! And Muhammad can just choke out, I have nothing to say. And so he begins choking him again a second time. Recite! Recite! And Muhammad has nothing to say. And so he chokes him a third time until finally Muhammad spouts out a couple of lines of verse. And these are seen to be the first lines of the Quran. Well, as you might imagine, he's quite upset by this experience. And as he returns back to this house in Mecca and relates the experience to his wife, Khadijah, he's afraid that perhaps he's encountered an evil spirit uh, called by the Arabians a jinn, But she's persuaded, no, it's something more. No, this was an angel that did this to you, and you are a prophet, and you need to preach the message that he has given you to preach. And so, he does begin to preach. As he begins preaching his message in Mecca, it is a message of one God, Allah. It is a message of social equitability in a time when there was a great disparity between the haves and the have-nots in this town. And after three years of preaching, he's managed to convert about 30 people. About 30 people. But he has so angered the powers that be in Mecca that they plot an assassination. They are tired of him preaching about this one God and that idolatry is wrong because idolatry is a big part of their economy in this town. Well, the plot to kill him becomes known to him, and so he escapes to Medina with a few of his followers. This flight to Medina is very significant. As he moves to this town, and we'll show it here on the map, once in Medina, he is seen as a great man. He asserts himself as an arbiter between feuding clans He becomes a statesman, a leader in the community. He unites all of the Arabian clans in Medina, and they go to work forcing out the Jewish clans in Medina, those of prominence. From Medina, he preaches and converts many to Islam. And he leads them in raids against the caravans heading back and forth to Mecca for power as well as for loot. Finally these skirmishes that go on between the Meccans and the Medinans or the Meccans and the Muslims comes to a head when Muhammad is able to raise an army of 10,000 Muslims to march on Mecca. When he raises that army of 10,000 and word gets to Mecca that he's coming with all these soldiers, they surrender the town. They surrender the town without fighting the battle. But here's the condition of turning over Mecca. They all have to convert to Islam as Muhammad takes the town then of Mecca. He is the ruler. He is the conquering prophet. All of the city is now officially Muslim. In 23 years, Muhammad had united the Arabian Peninsula, which had never been done throughout history. He had recited the Quran. He was the undisputed theocratic ruler of Arabia. And Islam was proclaimed forth by both preachers and the sword, a very, very significant figure in history. This is a little bit of Muhammad's story. Well, who is Jesus? Particularly, number two, who is the prophet Jesus in Islam? Or in Arabic, he is Isa. Muslims say that we believe in Jesus too. But we need to be aware that the Jesus or Isa that Muslims affirm is very different from the one that you and I love and serve. Muhammad mentions Jesus frequently in the Quran. That surprises some people. But as he talks about Jesus, as he retells the story of Jesus in his own words, in his own form, he greatly revises Jesus. I want to go through a chart with you. Who is Jesus? Which Jesus? As we look at the Jesus depicted in Scripture, the one I'm sure you are more familiar with, and the one revised and taught by Muhammad. This is the Jesus that Muslims affirm. Of course, we know in the Bible that Jesus Christ is the uncreated one, the eternal one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God in John 1, in verses 1 through 3. But Muhammad's Isa, the Islamic Jesus, He was created. He is a created being. And we see this in such places as Surah 19, verses 35 and 36. It does not behold God to have a son So immaculate is He. When He decrees a thing, He has only to say be, and it is. Jesus only said, Surely God is my Lord and your Lord, so worship Him. This is the straight path. Muhammad said be. Muhammad said, excuse me, Allah said be. Allah said exist. And so Jesus existed. He was created. Surah 3, verse 59, For God, for Allah, the likeness of Jesus is that of Adam, whom He fashioned out of dust and said be, and He was Jesus, a created being. In the Bible, we know Jesus Christ, who came from virgin birth. As the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would have the son, she said, how is this possible? For I have not known a man. She was a virgin. Well, the virgin birth is something that is retained in Islam. They believe the virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus. In Surah 3, verse 47, she, this is Mary, said, how can I have a son, O Lord, when no man has touched me? He said, that is how God creates what He wills. When He decrees a thing, He says, be, and it is. So there is the virgin birth. Jesus Christ of the Bible gave signs, miracles, demonstrating that He was the Son of God. The point of John 20 in verses 30 and 31, that Jesus did many other signs that these were recorded that you might believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in His name. A worker of miracles. Muhammad Isa also worked miracles. Performed great and mighty deeds and wonders. And this will be very significant in just a moment. In such places as Surah 5, verse 110 And when God will say, O Jesus, Son of Mary, remember the favors I bestowed on you and your mother and reinforced you with divine grace that you spoke to men when in the cradle and when in the prime of life, when I taught you the law and the judgment and the Torah and the gospel. The verse continues, When you healed the blind by my leave and the leper, when you put life into the dead by my will, and when I held back the children of Israel from you, when you brought to them my signs, and the disbelievers among them said, surely these are nothing but pure magic. You get this scene that Muhammad, Jesus, did work miracles. He did it by Allah's power. He did it by Allah's leave. And it enraged the Jews. They accused him of being a, a worker of magic. And perhaps this kind of calls to mind the idea of the Pharisees challenging him uh, that uh, he did these works by Beelzebub and Jesus taught him about a house divided and those sorts of things. That's retained. We see Jesus Christ in the Bible was crucified. They led Him to Calvary and there they crucified Him. The thieves on either side, He was crucified. But in Islam, Jesus was never crucified. He never died on the cross. Someone died on the cross, but it wasn't Jesus. Look at Surah 4, verse 156 and because they denied and spoke dreadful calumnies of Mary. The Jews were speaking against Mary. Surah 4, verse 157. And for saying, We killed the Christ Jesus, son of Mary, who was an apostle of God, but they neither killed nor crucified Him. Though it so appeared to them, for surely they did not kill Him. But God raised Him up in position... "...and closer to Himself." And God is almighty and all wise. What Muslims believe happened is that the Jews had Jesus and they wanted to crucify Him, but at the last moment, Allah kind of swept Him away, brought Him up to paradise. Kind of like the way Enoch or Elijah just went away, you know. just God brought them home. They say that's what happened to Jesus. So he was never crucified. And Allah allowed someone else to be crucified. And some of them think maybe it was Judas who was crucified. Maybe it was Simon the Cyrene, and there was some confusion. But they deny, they do not believe, and Muhammad did not teach, that Jesus was crucified. So where did that logically place us? Well, in the Bible, the story continues that not only was Jesus crucified, he died for our sins according to the scriptures, but on the third day, he arose! According to the scriptures, resurrection—the great power of Christianity—is the message of resurrection. Well, of course, in Islam, there is no resurrection. He never died, never crucified, he was never buried. So there is no resurrection. No resurrection. No Christianity. The Jesus of the Bible claimed to be God. We talked about this some yesterday. We'll talk about it in more, uh, greater detail even tomorrow, unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. In Islam, He denied any claim of ever being like Allah, of ever being God. Surah 5, verse 72. They are surely infidels who say, God is the Christ, Son of Mary. But the Christ had only said, O children of Israel, worship God who is my Lord and your Lord. Whosoever associates a compere with God will have paradise denied to him by God. Oh, I never said it. I never said I was God. In Surah 9, in verse 30, excuse me, we see the final claim, number 7, that He is God's Son. And in fact, in Matthew 17, verse 5, the voice from heaven, the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. God's Son is Jesus Christ. No son. No son of God in Islam. In Surah 17, Allah is far too transcendent. Surah 17, verse 111, And say, All praise be to God, who has neither begotten a son, nor has a partner in his kingdom, nor has he need of anyone to protect him from ignominy, so extol him by extolling his majesty. Surah 9, verse 30, The Christians say Christ is the Son of God. That is what they say with their tongues, following assertions made by unbelievers before them, May they be damned by God. How perverse are they. Do we say that Jesus is the Son of God? We say it right before we're baptized, don't we? It is not so in Islam. That is a damnable sin in Islam. And so we certainly begin to see who the Muslims have in mind when they speak of Jesus or Esau. He is not the same Jesus that Christians follow. Now, we look at who is Muhammad. We look at who is Jesus. We want to address the three major claims of both founders. This is on the next side of your interactive outlines. What is more stunning than their lives, The more striking, I should say, is really their claims. Jesus and Muhammad made three claims that overlap each other. And I want to bring these claims to your attention and examine the evidence offered in the Quran and the Bible to either corroborate or expose these claims. Here's the first claim that both made. Again, they overlap. Both claim to be foretold in Scripture. Number three in your notes, both claim to be foretold in Scripture. Both claim that their arrival was prophesied. That is, that they're foretold. God or Allah said they were coming. God had announced their are coming. The people should have been looking for them. The people should have been glad for their arrival. Muslim apologists claim uh, some very specific passages in the Bible foretell the coming of Muhammad. And just for example, let us look at two. The first is to be found in Deuteronomy 18 and verse number 18. And you might turn with me in your Old Testament there to the book of Deuteronomy in the 18th chapter. And hear the words of Moses in verse number 18. For here is one of the first places Muslims turn to to say, See, Muhammad is foretold in the Bible. Deuteronomy 18, verse number 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and he will put my words in, excuse me and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command to him. The prophet would be like me, like Moses. Muslims say Muhammad gave the law like Moses, and Muhammad was a man like Moses. And Muhammad lived in the Arabian wilderness like Moses did for a time. And I wonder, is this the best understanding, the best interpretation of this prophecy of Moses? The Apostle Peter offers another in Acts chapter 3 and verse 22. Acts chapter 3 and verse 22. Hear the preaching of Peter as he recalls to mind the words of Moses to the Jews who heard his preaching. In Acts 3 and verse 22, "...for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever He says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days." You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first God, having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Peter uses this same prophecy and said it is applied and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's the first of a long line of prophecies that are applied and fulfilled in Christ. Muslims don't take on the rest of the chain of prophecies. They like this one. No, my friends, this is not speaking about Muhammad. In John 14, 15, and 16, these three chapters in the New Testament, Muslims tell us Jesus was prophesying of Muhammad. Jesus said that Muhammad was coming. Would you turn with me in your New Testament to the book of John? And let's look at John chapter 14. You recall the setting here. It is the Last Supper. Jesus is having discourse with His apostles the night of His betrayal. And what is at issue is Jesus' promise of the Helper. Who is this Helper coming to the apostles? Well, Muslims key on this idea of the Helper, and they say, It is Muhammad. Muhammad is the one who's coming. Well, I want you to notice John 14, verse 26. where we're told who the Helper is. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. We know Muslims deny that there is God, the Holy Spirit. So that must be one of those interpolations, even though it's clearly identified who the Helper is. So even if we'd have to throw that verse out, as this Helper is described, is it really Muhammad? Let's notice a couple of verses together, shall we? John 14 Verse number 16, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever. The Helper would be with the apostles forever. That's who Jesus is speaking to. And yet, Muhammad didn't appear until 600 years after the apostles died. I wonder how Muhammad would have helped them. In John 14 and verse 17, The Spirit of Truth the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The world can't receive the Helper, yet Muhammad was a man living in the world. The world saw Him. The world received Him. John 14, verse 26, The Helper is sent in Christ's name, yet Muhammad comes in Allah's name. And Allah has no equal. Allah has no son. The helper is going to remind the apostles of all that Christ taught. Yet Muhammad was not present to remind the apostles of anything. And when he came, he said he brought the words of Allah, not the words of Christ. In John 15 and verse 26, John 15 verse 26, we read, But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness, because you have seen with, been with me from the beginning. The Helper and the Apostles would bear witness of Christ. Yet Muhammad and the Apostles offer completely different testimony of Christ. This is not Muhammad. In John 16 and verse 7, we read this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me. I want you to see how the Helper is going to convict of sin, and particularly of a disbelief in Jesus. And yet, Muhammad teaches that to believe in Jesus is the greatest sin in the eyes of all of us. Again, Surah 9, verse 30, The Christians say Christ is the Son of God. That is what they say with their tongues, following assertions made by unbelievers before them. May they be damned by God. How perverse are they. It is so clear these passages do not prophesy Muhammad. We are left wondering in so many instances, just where does the Bible foretell the existence of Muhammad? And what about Jesus. What about His prophetic credentials? Does He do any better at fulfilling prophecy to be this foretold one? I want to share with you some facts about Old Testament prophecy. You may know these things, perhaps I'll just jog your memory a little bit. Written over a thousand year period, the Old Testament was, including the prophecies. When we think about particularly the prophecies of the Messiah, there are 60 major messianic prophecies with 270 ramifications. There are over 300 prophetic references to the Messiah and all of these things are recorded 400 years before the Messiah appeared. The Old Testament canon was closed and it had even been translated into other languages before Jesus comes on the scene. And all of this creates something. It creates an address in time. that only one person in all of time can meet all of these prophecies. Fulfill all of these prophecies. So is it Jesus? Does Jesus fulfill these 400-year-old messianic prophecies that He claimed to? Is He the foretold one? Is He the prophesied one? The answer is yes. Absolutely, Jesus is the Christ, the foretold one. Many sermons have been written about Jesus' fulfilled prophecies. Many books have been written for that matter. I'll just give you a couple of examples I find quite striking. Because several of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled were beyond the power of any man to contrive, to make happen. For instance, nobody gets to choose where they're born. Did you get to choose what town you were born in? (laughs) Some say, no, I would have picked a different town. (laughs) Nobody gets to choose what town they're born in. But Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the town that is prophesied where the Messiah will come from. No person gets to choose the family that they're born into. Did you get to choose your parents? Did you get to choose your brothers and sisters? Now, if they're not sitting next to you, you might say, well, you know, I, maybe I would have done ch- chosen different. <laughs> Nobody gets to choose their family. And yet here's Jesus born right into the family of David, just as it was prophesied. It's beyond his control to accomplish these things. Very few people choose how they died. And yet Christ's death is recounted in detail in Psalm 22 and verses 6 through 18, the piercing of His hands, the piercing of His feet. And it is striking because that was written 800 years before Rome began using the cross. Now both men say that the Scriptures foretell their arrival, but it's only Jesus of Nazareth, only Jesus Christ's appeal is a Bible prophecy that checks out. There's a second claim that overlaps. It's number four in your outline. Both claim to be appointed messengers of God. Jesus and Muhammad both claim they're the commissioned one. They're the ones sent by God to do His work. Both claim to be God's final messenger, God's final um, bringing God's final revealed message. So who's right about that? You know, it's interesting that God gave tests in the Bible for prophets. How do you know well, what a prophet speaking is true or false? Aren't there false prophets? We know there are. God warned that there are false prophets. And so He gave two tests that every prophet must pass in order to be legitimate. The first test of genuine prophet. and go ahead and turn your Bible back to Deuteronomy 13, if you will. Deuteronomy 13. The first test is this that there were to be accompanying signs or wonders or miracles that a prophet performed. Isn't it interesting, as Mark's gospel closes in Mark 16 and verse 20, that the apostles went forth preaching the gospel, preaching the word, and the Lord was confirming their message with the accompanying signs and miracles. It was demonstrations of power that this really was God's person, God man. In Deuteronomy 13 and verses 1 through 5, it talks about and warning the children of Israel i not following after a false prophet. And it begins really with one who could do some signs. Again, this is a prerequisite. Demonstrate power of God. In Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign, gives you a wonder. Well, now we have a reason to listen to him. God's obviously with this man. But here's the second test. As Deuteronomy 13 continues, that the message he brings should have agreement with previous revelation. Deuteronomy 13, verse 2, continues. And the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because He has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst." How clear is this that a sign or a wonder must be performed? God is with Him. And that God doesn't change His Word. He's not going to bring something that contradicts what an acceptable message from God has already taught. Those two tests. Well, how did Jesus and Muhammad do with these tests? What about signs? Did Jesus do signs? We've already seen that He did. In fact, this is taught in both the Bible and the Quran that Jesus is a worker of miracles and these things demonstrated his identity as the Son of God. But what about agreement with previous revelation? Absolutely Jesus passes this test. He's the one who made the statement in John 10 verse 35 that Scripture is not to be broken. In Matthew 5 verses 17 through 18, He did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. He kept the law of Moses perfectly himself. And his teaching is in no way a contradiction of that previous revelation. Scripture. How about Muhammad? Did Muhammad do signs? Did he perform miracles? Not according to the Koran. In the Koran, a real point is made to say he never did work any signs. He never did work any miracles. That wasn't his role. In such places, as Surah 6 and verse 37. They say, how is it no miracle was sent down to him from his Lord? People questioning Muhammad and wondering, where's the miracle, prophet? Say, God certainly has power to send down a miracle that most men cannot understand. Hmm. Not just giving a sign. Surah 29, verse 48. You did not read any scripture before this, nor wrote one with your right hand, or else these dissemblers would have found a clause to doubt it. In fact, in the minds of those who have intelligence, these are clear signs. No one denies our revelations except those who are unjust. For they say, how is it those signs were sent down to him from his Lord? Say, the signs are with God. I am only a warner, plain and simple. The Quran says that the Quran itself is Muhammad's only sign. And Muslims agree that Muhammad was too uneducated to speak something so beautiful. Surah 10, verse 37. This Quran is not such a writ, it could be composed by anyone but God. It confirms what has been revealed before as an exposition of heaven's law without any doubt. It's from the Lord of all the worlds. Surah 17, verse 88. Say, surely if men and jinns get together to produce the like of this Koran, they will not be able to produce the like of it. However, they might assist one another. It's the beauty of the Quran, It's the resonance of the Koran in Arabic that is the proof. It is divine word. That is not proof. Jehovah God differentiates the message from the proof. False prophets aren't identified because their teachings aren't pretty enough or clever enough. They are identified because they fail to the work the signs or pass the test that Jehovah God ordained for prophets. That's saying, you know, who a prophet, whether a prophet is true or false. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, in the uninspired traditions recorded some 300 years after his life, there it said that Muhammad did some things supernatural. There it said Muhammad split the moon in half one night. There it said Muhammad had water shoot out of his fingers to help uh, water his men and, and horses on some raid. Miraculous things in the uninspired traditions. But in what they say is inspired in the Quran, he did no signs, just accept this as a sign. That's very different. What about the idea of agreement with previous revelation? Is Muhammad going to go along with what Jehovah with what had already been said in the Old Testament and the New Testament? We already know the answer is no. But there's great contradiction between the previous revelation. That there is this doctrine of abrogation that allows him to change his mind. We remember that the prophets spoke for God. They are God's mouthpiece. And God speaks truth. Nothing a prophet uh, said, contradicted, or abrogated a previously proven revelation. A prophet's word must be consistent with all that God had said before. And Muhammad defied this test of genuine prophethood. There's no intention of keeping the Quran consistent with previous proven revelation. Instead, he seeks to justify his contradictions by claiming that Satan tampered with, corrupted all of the previous scripture. Surah 22, verse 52. We have uh, sent no messenger or apostle before you with his recitation Satan did not tamper. Yet God abrogates what Satan interpolates. Then he confirms his revelations, for God is all-knowing and all-wise. This is in order to make the interpolations of Satan a test for those whose hearts are diseased and hardened. Surely the sinners have gone far in dissent. So, of course I'm going to contradict it, because I say it's wrong. Sorry, verse 106. This allows him to abrogate, to cast into oblivion anything he said before, uh, either said in proven scripture or even something Mohammed said earlier. When we cancel a message sent to an earlier prophet or throw it into oblivion, we replace it with one better or one similar. They sound kind of alike. Or maybe it's better, but it's not the same. Again, it doesn't match the test. God doesn't desire His people to be swept away by false prophets. And so He gave these tests that confirm who is truly His mouthpiece and Jesus passed the test. And Muhammad cannot sustain this claim to be an appointed messenger of God. And we have one last one to share. It's Point number five in your outline, the last overlapping quote, excuse me, claim, both claim to be the example to follow. Muhammad says this. Muhammad says he's the perfect example, the perfect paradigm to follow. Surah 33, verse 21. You have indeed a noble paradigm in the apostle of God for him who fears God and the day of resurrection and remembers God frequently. So follow Muhammad. Of course, we're familiar with such passages as First Peter 2, and verse 21 we're supposed to follow Jesus. And Christians understand we, we follow Jesus. Uh, to this you recall, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. And that's even in dark times of persecution in that context. Follow the example of Jesus. 1 John 2, verse 6. He who says he abides in Him himself also to walk just as he walked. Follow the example of Jesus. One billion people in the world try to pattern their life after Muhammad's example. They're commanded to do it. But I want you to know it's a very difficult thing to do because as we see the example of Muhammad, he was quite often a law unto himself. I'm going to give you a few examples of this. For instance, in the Quran, polygamy is allowed. Surah 4, verse 3, a Muslim can have four wives. A Muslim man can have four wives. Surah 4, verse 3, If you fear you cannot be equitable to orphan girls... In your charge or misuse their persons, then marry women who are lawful for you. Two, three, or four. But if you fear you cannot treat so many with equity, marry only one. Or a maid, or a captive. This is better than being iniquitous. So how many wives can a Muslim man have? A Muslim man can have four wives. But not the example. It's different for Muhammad. In Surah 33 verse 50, we have made lawful for you, O Prophet, wives to whom you have given their dower and God-given maids and captives you have married and the daughters of your father's brothers and the daughters of your father's sisters and the daughters of your mother's brothers and sisters who migrated with you and a believing woman who offers herself to the prophet if the prophet desires to marry her. This is a privilege only for you and not the other believers. We know what we have ordained for them about their wives and maids they possess, so that you may be free of blame, for God is forgiving and kind. So the men get four, Lana gets as many as he wants, and history says he had between 13 and 16. The youngest, Aisha, she was nine years old. Now, only the prophet can defer or take wives at his whim. Other Muslims have to love their wives all equally you notice at the end of Surah 4 in verse 3, when it tells you to take two or three or four wives, but if you fear you not, cannot treat so many with equity, marry only one. Well, what's that mean, to treat them with equity? Well, most Muslim scholars agree that it means that if you have multiple wives, you need to have a fair rotation of your time to do your husbandly duty by your wives, and you don't break the rotation. That's equity. But not so for Muhammad. Again, a special revelation for his case, that he can break the rotation and go to the ones he wants and ignores the others. Surah 33, verse 51. You may defer the turn of any of your wives you like, and may take any other you desire. There is no harm if you take any of those whose turn you had deferred. This would be better, as it would gladden their hearts. And they will not grieve each will be happy with what you have given her. God knows what is in your heart, for He is all wise and benign. So a special revelation from Allah tells the prophet, you treat your wives just however you want, visit the ones you like, and leave the other ones alone, and do it however you want. It'll make their hearts glad, Allah told them. In Surah 33, verse 56, we see that Muhammad is supposed to be venerated, supposed to be spoken highly than any of his Muslim brethren. In Surah 33, verse 56, God and his angels shower their blessings on the prophet. O believers, you should also send your blessings on him and salute him with a worthy greeting. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the lesson, Muslims don't say his name without saying why. Peace be upon him. This is why. It's enjoined. You talk about him differently than any other Muslim. He has special etiquette. You're supposed to treat the prophet different than any other Muslim. In Surah 33 and verse 53, how is it should you go by Muhammad's house? He said, O you who believe, do not enter the house of the prophet for a meal without awaiting the proper time, unless asked. And enter when you are invited and depart when you have eaten. And do not stay on talking. This puts the prophet to inconvenience. And he feels embarrassed before you, but God is not embarrassed in saying the truth. And when you ask his wife for something uh, uh, of utility, ask for it behind the screen. This is for the purity of your hearts and theirs. It does not behoove you to annoy the prophet of God or to ever marry his wives after him. This would indeed be serious in the sight of God. And there's a few things going on in this verse that sets Muhammad different from any of his Muslim followers. Well, he doesn't want house guests hanging around him. I mean, I had no trouble with etiquette, and you shouldn't overstay your welcome. I understand that. But to think that the God of all the universe, Allah, took time to tell people don't hang around the house too long, that's really something. You know? This business down here, you don't annoy the prophet of God or ever marry his wives after him. His widows didn't get to marry anybody else. The other Muslim widows could marry. In fact, Muhammad even married a couple of his buddies who died in Jihad. They're widows. But not so when he dies. Nobody marries his wives. It's just different. You see, he's a law unto himself in many respects. And yet they're supposed to follow this perfect example. So, what is the example? Do as I say, not as I do. The example is that Muhammad is favored by Allah above any other Muslim, and so some things in life are just a little bit little bit easier for him. This is not the way it is with Jesus Christ. This is not how he set an example for Christians to follow. And the thing is, as the Son of God on Earth, you might think that he would take a pass on some of the more difficult things. Surely he should be favored and shown special treatment if anyone but that's not the way He was. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. didn't take a pass there. He experienced humanity fully, facing trials, facing temptation. He was tempted in all points, as are we, and yet without sin. He didn't take a pass. He didn't try to be a law unto Himself, he perfectly consistent to the scripture, the previous revelation. He fulfilled the law of Moses to such a degree. I mean, the degree of perfection, but he actually did this. He, he actually challenged others to name his sin. Would you ever be so bold as to say to another person, Tell me I've sinned, show me where I've sinned? If I ever did that, they'd say, "Oh, Andrew, sit down. I've got a lot to tell you, friend." Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. You no know, one coming and having the full experience of humanity, not taking the path, not taking the easy road. He sets down the trustworthy, the perfect example to follow. And as I conclude the lesson, I I just want to. Bring the question to your attention. Who will you follow? A striking comparison comes before us when looking at one of the hadith, one of the traditions that pertain to Muhammad. And I think it helps us really to think through the question, who will you follow? From the hadith, one time a woman was brought to Muhammad who had committed adultery. They asked him, what shall we do with her? Muhammad said, go away. Bring her back after the baby is born. So they brought her back after the baby was born. And Muhammad said, let her go and nurse the child. Bring her back when the child is two years old. So they brought her back. And Muhammad said, take the baby from her and kill her. And that is what they did. Now in comparing Muhammad to Jesus, there was a time when people brought a woman to Jesus who had been caught in adultery. Shall we stone her? The people said. And Jesus replied, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. Everybody went away. There was no one left to stone her because they all knew they had sinned. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I ask you, whom do you want to follow? Do you want to follow Muhammad? Or do you want to follow Jesus? You want to follow Jesus Christ tonight? Christ's claims are legitimate. He is offering you tonight the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And you can become a Christian to follow him from this moment on and And ever after, do you go to be with Him in heaven? He's made provision for the forgiveness of your sins. It's that power of salvation, the gospel. Because He did die on the cross and shed His precious blood that you might know the forgiveness of your sins, to pay the price for your sins and for mine. And He arose again to assure us of an everlasting life and to preach to us that we would come believing, confessing that He is the Son of God and being baptized immersed in wonder for the remission of our sins, we might be reconciled to God. We might be a true follower of His, child of His. Do you want to follow Jesus? Come forward and make that known. Confess Him. Be baptized to Him. Come forward now. Together we stand and sing a song of encouragement. Won't you come?